Good morning, everybody. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 21 through 28. But to start us off, I'm just going to read the first couple verses, 21 and 22, and we'll save the rest for a little bit in the middle. Mark chapter 1. Verse 21, and I'll read 22 as well. This is what the gospel writer says. He's speaking about Jesus. As soon as Jesus uh, called his disciples, here's where the text leaves off. It says, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Somebody turn next to, someone turn to someone next to you and say, he ain't like the scribes. We got it. There you go. Come on. Now respond to that person and say, that's because Jesus is different. There you go. Look. We have seen this theme since we began the gospel of Mark. The whole gospel is, as we've been picturing it, uh, telling us the single theme that Jesus is king. Everything about the gospel of Mark is going to be about Jesus is king. But a theme that we've seen emerge in the first half of this first chapter is that this king is different. He's very different. We saw that at the, be- uh, at the very beginning in the first verse. Jesus is a better king than Caesar. We saw it with John the Baptist who said, I baptize you with water, but this guy's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. We saw it when, we, when the, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and the Father said, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased in him. And we saw it right after that where Jesus, the great rabbi, reverses the religious system and goes after the least of these in order to change the world. Over and over, we're seeing the same theme. This guy is different. He's not the same as any other leader. He's not the same as any other mentor. This is a different character. And what we're about to see in the next few verses is that even his teaching is different. I love this first verse. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This means that part of what it means to follow Jesus means that we follow his teaching. We follow the things that he says. Now, Capernaum was a small town, about 10,000 people. You might compare it to the city of Carpinteria. It was right on the shore of Galilee, and it was fairly prosperous as a trade route with a toll station. And right in the middle of Capernaum was a synagogue. There was only one synagogue. If you were to go to Capernaum today, you would see that synagogue there, standing yay tie. It's made out of white limestone. Uh, underneath it, that's kind of an older synagogue. Underneath it, you'll see a layer of black basalt. And that was the original synagogue that stood in Capernaum where Jesus taught, probably the first place that Jesus ever taught. And a synagogue is, is a different, it's a different picture than the temple. When you think of the temple, you might think of temple sacrifices. You might think of high priests. The synagogue was a different style of practice. It was meant for the people to come together during the week to pray and to expound the scriptures. And so when you think back, you might, this might be a more comparable expression of worship 
to what we might understand as a Sunday morning gathering, that would be the synagogue. That's where people came, they opened up the scriptures, they would preach, they would respond in prayer, and maybe even singing. But what was different also about the synagogue, unlike the temple where only one high priest would get up at a certain point and do the offering to God in the synagogue, this was open to just about anybody. It was the laity that would get up and, and preach the scriptures. And it was typical for the laity to get up on the Sabbath and a, a scroll would be opened and they would give an exposition on that, that passage of scripture. And on this day, a young guy by the name of Jesus walks up and it's his turn, except that this one is different. And it says in verse 22 that they were astonished at his teaching. For Jesus taught them as one who had authority. Where is the astonishment coming from? This dude has authority. In other words, you, you could imagine, we talked about this last week, by the time you're 30 years old as a Jewish person uh, in the first century, you've gone through a lot of teaching. You've gone through decades of teaching. And so teaching is not strange to them. It's not foreign to their ears. This type of teaching is though. They were astonished at it. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Scribes were the highly esteemed scholars and experts in the Torah. Last week, we talked about how it took about a decade for a five-year-old to go through the religious system of education in that day in order to follow a rabbi and to apprentice them. And from that small cream of the crop, the best of the best would emerge and go on to become rabbis and scribes. Scribes were not just highly esteemed, but they had a lot of power. They were the ones who explained the Bible to you. They were the ones who made binding decisions on your life based on the Bible. And they were also influential in the Sanhedrin, which was the leadership council of Israel in that day. They had a lot of authority du jour, meaning it was ascribed to them. It was the legal authority that they had. But Jesus' authority was de facto authority. It was just noticeable in his manner of life. It wasn't a title that he had. It wasn't his education. It was simply in his life, words, and action. And it was so powerful that the people listening were blown away. The scribes got described, if I could put it that way. And notice that it's not necessarily the content of Jesus' teaching that Mark is pinpointing. He's not, he's not making a case that it's a specific thing that Jesus said on that day that blew people's mind. Although I'm sure whatever he said that day was incredible. Mark leaves that out. It's as if Mark wants us to see that it's the manner in which Jesus taught that was so different. And what I want to spend the next few minutes uh, showing you from this text is what exactly it was about Jesus' manner of speaking that was so astonishing. We'll start with the first one. Jesus' words are trustworthy. Jesus' words are trustworthy. And they're trustworthy precisely because they're so authentic. Now, when I say authentic, I don't mean he's being true to himself. I mean that his words are coming from a genuine source. Scribes in that day generally didn't have a lot of unique things to say. They just passed down the tradition that was handed to them to other people. It was passed down from tradition to tradition from some rabbi as they learned it. 
And in this way, maybe our world has become familiar in a sense. We don't know who to trust anymore as everyone we know simply passes down the information that they got from their favorite source of news, whether it's sound bites or it's Facebook posts or it's something that my friend said. But the problem that so many of us feel when we're talking about deep and even contentious issues, right, is I don't know if I trust your source. What makes Jesus different is he didn't learn from our sources. It was given to him directly from his father. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 49, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me this commandment. He's given me what to say and what to speak. Now, I want to pause right here and just say, if anybody said that, we would think that they're crazy. Can you imagine if I rolled up here behind the pulpit and I was like, everybody, everything that I'm saying comes from nowhere except from God himself. He's delivering to me what I need to say to you, which makes it binding. You'd be like, uh, flag on the play, bro. We think people like that are nuts. That's the stuff that cults are made out of. That's what we see on Dateline. You know what I'm saying? And that was exactly what the late literary expert C.S. Lewis was famous for arguing. I want to give you an excerpt from him from his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And this is what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. But you must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. And so you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, Jesus' astounding claims make him either a lunatic because of the claims that he's making, a liar who's just crazy, or who he says he is. Lord and Savior. And Lord is precisely the case that the gospel writer Mark is setting out to make for us. So in a world where trust in people's words is being massively eroded, we can take heart that Jesus' words are authentic to the source. He doesn't lie to you. He doesn't make stuff up. He doesn't have confirmation bias. He's not making a mistake. He's true and he's trustworthy. The second thing about Jesus' words is that Jesus' words are refreshing. See, since scribes just passed down traditions that they learned from another tradition, from another tradition, it could often feel like today, like just a mere information transfer. Do you ever feel that way? Like I'm just getting data from somebody else. I imagine that sitting at the feet of a scribe in the first century felt like reading a microwave manual for fun. 
It's very dry. There's a lot of data in there, and maybe you need it for your life, but it's not very refreshing. Jesus comes in on the scene, and people are astonished. I imagine that's what it feels when you've been spending the rest of your life reading microwave manuals, and all of a sudden someone comes in on the scene and speaks directly from God to you. While Jesus was not a scribe in that sense, just transferring information, he spoke with what one person refers to as, uh, one person calls a prophetic disturbance. Uh, when someone speaks prophetically, they're saying, they're, speak, they're speaking as though it's God's word being sent directly to you. Uh, it's a disturbance in the sense that it's, it's not safe. It's not always comfortable, but it's precisely refreshing for that very reason. Jesus was prophetically disturbing in his words. He never left you comfortable with the status quo. He didn't pat you on the back necessarily, but he woke your heart up and he did it as though God himself were speaking directly to you. Now, not everybody received the things that he said. Like him or hate him, Jesus' words never left people neutral. They always left you changed either repelling you away from him or bringing you close to him. But there wasn't a lot of middle ground there. They left you changed as he would call people from all different walks of life, in all different situations, not just to information, but to an eternal way of living. Today, we're overwhelmed with the noise, right? Constant noise, information, People telling us what to believe and how to feel and what to do. And maybe some of it's good, but the sheer volume of it can feel so overwhelming that sometimes we just want to turn it off. Sometimes we have nothing to contribute to it that won't just make it more noise and our only option is to turn it off. But Jesus has a different option. Jesus cuts through the noise, calling people to the kingdom of God. And you know what? When we read his accounts, it seemed like from the reaction of the people that listened to his words that what he said was both scary and refreshing for ancient Israel, who thought that they were the kingdom of God. Jesus comes in on the scene and says, the kingdom of God has arrived in me. So follow me. And I believe that it remains the same today for those who are willing to listen to the words of Jesus. Scary and refreshing. Today, you might feel stuck. You might feel overwhelmed. And I'm here today to tell you that you just don't need more social media. You don't need more news pundits. You don't need more political satire. You don't need more articles. As if just an extra hour of scrolling is going to be that final thing that you need that will change your life. What you need, what we need, are the prophetic words of Jesus Christ to awaken us once again. Jesus' words are trustworthy. Jesus' words are refreshing. Jesus' words are also transformative. They change you. And that's why I wanted to save that last block of text for now. Let's pick it up in verse 23. 
says right after he's teaching and the crowds are astonished, it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. For those of you that might have never seen that phrase before, that means he had demons. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now he's referring to himself in the plural, so it probably means he had a lot of demons. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the demons and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, as it has been for centuries, all the way to Santa Barbara. Listen, this isn't just novel information. This ain't no TED Talk, you know what I'm saying? This isn't something to tickle your ears and give you three steps to launch a business. This isn't that, this is different. This is the kind of teaching that liberates people from oppression. This is powerful. And the crowds, notice, associate this with his teaching authority. They're saying demons are leaving because of the words that this guy is saying. That's different. I love this because today so many words can feel useless and irrelevant like throwing spaghetti on the wall, hoping that something will stick. But Jesus' words will change you. And against the backdrop of Caesar, against the backdrop of the Old Testament prophet John the Baptist, against the backdrop of the religious professionals, Jesus isn't just different. Mark is telling us Jesus is better. Can I get an amen to that from somebody? Jesus' words are trustworthy. They're refreshing. They're transforming Jesus' words are powerful. Our words expand the brain, but Jesus' words expand the heart. Our words disseminate our own opinions, but Jesus' words disseminate change. Our words bring more information, but Jesus' words bring life. In fact, he would say in John 6, verse 66, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And listening to the words of Jesus will set you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Hallelujah. So you might be asking, well, how do I get those? I want this. How do, how, do I, how do I hear the words of Jesus? And honestly, it's simple. You know, that seems to be a theme in our church right now, simplicity. <laughs> and I think that applies here too. Just means listening to them anew once again. One of the ways you can start doing that is by simply reading the Bible in light of Jesus. If you just took out Jesus' quoted words, it would be about this big, and the Bible's about this big, right? And the beauty of the Bible is that all of it is about Christ in some way. It either points towards him or it points back to him. Now, there are a couple things we might want to avoid as we read the scriptures. One is what I like to call the answer book only syndrome, 
where we never read it, we don't know God, but when we have a problem in our life, we instantly open it trying to find like a, a fortune, fortune cookie answer to what we're dealing with. And look, here's the thing. If you open the Bible, can you find answers for your life? Yeah, of course. If you're going through something, like you, you have, you're struggling like with your taxes and you're like, I'm gonna open up the book of Mark and hope that I can find some great information there to help me. Or I'm having a very difficult day. I'm going to open this up and hope that I find some comfort. Will you find that? Of course you will. But the Bible is also so much bigger than that. That if we only use it as an answer book, we miss out on the grandeur that it was created for. I love this analogy. It's like if I came up to you and grabbed your family heirloom, a crystal wine decanter, that has been handed down from your great-great-grandma and said, can I use this to fill my radiator? What would you say to that? You'd probably be like, yeah, you could, but you're missing out on the grandeur for which something like that was created. It's the same with the Bible. Yeah, it's got answers for your life, but it's also a story about a king. And one of the best things we could do with that story is to get immersed in it and to hear his words, not just to fix our problems, but to follow, to fall in love with, to learn about, and to become like Jesus. The other thing we want to avoid is what I like to call red letter Christianity. And that's a movement that came out that says, since Jesus' words are the ones that matter, only read, some Bibles will have red letter text. Mine does. I actually like it because I like reading red letters. But we can take it a step farther by saying it's only what Jesus wrote or what he said. He didn't write anything. What he said that matters. Everything else has just been added to that. Old Testament, Paul, so on and so forth. But that's not what Jesus, that's not Jesus' opinion of the scriptures. He, he authoritatively blessed the entire Old Testament, saying to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is those that bear witness to me. And of the New Testament, he commissioned apostles to witness about his life and words. The whole Bible is a story about God sending a king. And so one of the ways that we can read the Bible is in light of Jesus. How is this pointing me towards him? In fact, you'll find that in the practice of the church, so much of what we do has to do with the words of Jesus, even our singing, which we're gonna be doing in a few minutes. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Marinate on him, listen to him, hear him, let him sink in, and then Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love that. It's like this cyclical liturgy where we hear Christ's words and then we sing them out in praise. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to ask uh, Robert and the team to come up here as we respond to Jesus' words with our song. And as we do it, I want you to think of it like this. We breathe in his words and we exhale in praise. 
And before we exhale in praise, I just want to give you some of his words to breathe in. Now, I know words, especially in the Bible, have context and need explanation, and we're going to spend the next two or three years doing that from the Gospel of Mark. But right now, I just want you to hear some of Jesus' most impactful words without commentary, without analysis. I've got about 28 of them. And I just want you to allow them to wash over you as though he were right here speaking these words to you. Don't analyze them. Don't problem solve. Don't think about that email sitting in your inbox that you can't stop thinking about. Just allow Jesus to speak to you. Then I'm going to leave the stage and let's exhale what we've heard back to him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am coming soon. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You are the light of the world. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and the greatest among you shall be your servant. And with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, that door will be opened to them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And if you love me, you'll obey what I command. You know that the rulers in this world love to lord it over their people and their officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you of your trespass. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. <laughs> in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So don't worry saying, what am I going to eat? What are we going to drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things, but your heavenly father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. <laughs> 